Dan Hicks, you're Professor of Contemporary Archaeology at the University of Oxford, Curator at the Pitt Rivers Museum, and Fellow of St Cross College, Oxford. Welcome to St Cross College Shorts. Okay, thank you. Lovely to be here. It's now just over a year since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. Can you describe your everyday research at Oxford before COVID-19? Sure, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, like a lot of, of academics in Oxford, I have a, a joint role. So I'm half in the museums and I have another foot in archaeology in an academic uh, department. So my everyday life you know, moves in between really the public sphere, the, you know, the parts of Oxford which are normally open to the public, the, uh, the Pitt Rivers Museum, you know, where I am curator of uh, world archaeology. I look after objects from, from every part of, of, of the world and objects that relate to the history of anthropology and archaeology and empire, as well as to the, uh, the knowledge of, you know, non-Western, indigenous you know, lives and cultures. And in archaeology, I'm professor of contemporary archaeology. So I teach those aspects of archaeology that relate to the material world in the most recent sort of phases of the human past. So the modern world, the 17th century, 18th century, but also right the way up, you know, into the 20th century and into the material worlds around us in the present. So those two institutional roles overlap in really interesting, you know, creative ways. And they're both really all about, fundamentally, I guess, about the relationship in between objects and uh, uh, people, how important things and landscapes, you know, buildings and, and art, you know, is in our everyday lives. How did your world of research change when the pandemic took hold? So in the museum world, the museum shuts, and as as I'm sure you've you've heard from other academics, and you uh, you know yourself on the teaching side and the research side, yeah, everything went online. I think for the museum sector, it was that moment of furlough for colleagues who were unable to do their job in the museum, which led to all sorts of questions, you know, challenges for us about not asking too much of people, the challenges over, you know, mental well-being, over coping with children at home, which which certainly, you know, we in our households had to deal with, but more generally had to support uh, colleagues in the museum for. You know, it was a funny moment, wasn't it? Though, you know, the, uh, the, you know, the first weeks of lockdown i mean here we are talking in in early 21 you know when it's unclear you know as and when these sort of lockdowns really will be over and you know how this ends or when this ends at least but certainly it was an oddly both a temporal and an oddly visual moment it was a sense that the temporal lives that we were living you know some things I mean, oddly, some things seem to happen faster than others. Some processes in the museum sector were speeded up, while other things you know, just took forever. And an oddly visual moment in that we were suddenly unable to be near to each other. The, a new, I mean, as an anthropologist, one would say a new set of uh, taboos upon you know, physical proximity were introduced, but suddenly a whole set of, you know, new regimes for looking at each other. We've been staring at each other on screen, you know, looking into each other's houses for months now. So that fundamental recalibration, which is one that's affected all parts of society about time, about vision, 
about our human our human connections to our you know friends and colleagues has I think been most visible in the museums. There's been obviously for teaching, supporting research students. You know, most of my work is with you know, postgraduate students, as is often the case at uh, St Cross. Supporting those students, helping researchers to help each other to build new you know, communities has been a part of this as well. But lots of looking at screens. I'm sure you've had the same. Can I follow up with a question, which is you mentioned taboos created by COVID-19 lockdown. Can you say any more about that? Well, you know, taboos created and taboos lifted. You know, how odd it is that there was such sort of pushback for some on the hard right against, you know, the wearing of masks. That sense that virtually any other part of the body you know, can be covered. Indeed, you know, many parts of the body where, where one is, where it would, be, it, would, it would be inappropriate not to be covered. But something about the face and the nose, that was a step too far for some people to think that this might be, you know, even though it was so important for you know public health, it might be, you know, wrong to do. I was really astounded by, you know, the anthropologist in me was also upset really by how little we were in our public sort of dialogues thinking about the fact that this this was only this was only a set of social mores that needed to evolve into a changing situation. You know, there are some and of course, all those wider arguments, you know, most visible in France, but certainly one hears it from our own prime minister or has done in the past over the politics of facial coverings for other reasons, you know, veils and so forth. You know, that it went to the heart of a of a question of kind of dress, of of comportment, of, you know, I'm sure someone will write at some point a great, uh, you know, account, an ethnographic account of, you know, you know, what we covered, but also what we uncovered. The fact that our faces have been so visible. I've never looked at my own face more, I think, in my life than I have having it in the little corner of the Zoom screen. And I'm sure lots of people you know, listening to this you know, will also have had that same experience. Can I ask you about the public health emergencies that unfolded and uh, how that affected the Pitt Rivers and the extent to which that affected museums more broadly? Yes, I mean, you know, the museums were shut to the public. That It meant that some functions you know, could indeed, in many cases, had to, you know, to carry on the basic sort of processes of conservation, you know, security and so forth are inevitable. I think across the museum sector, there was this kind of you know, directorial kind of panic that somehow, you know, everything had to be moved online. How do you move a museum online? And what the, the biggest thing that was revealed was how NAF and how out of date, how underinvested in most, you know, museum digital content is. So I was very aware in the early days of lockdown that you know, managers were, you know, calling upon the digital teams who themselves were coping with all the things I've met, you know, they were under, they were locked down in their houses, they had their, their, you know, their kids with them, they had all of, all the challenges, the physical and the mental sort of challenges that lockdown brought, and were being asked suddenly to, to, you know, to pull out of a hat, you know, digital content. 
that was part of the context, I guess, for the Museums Unlocked initiative uh, was to try and you know, take a bit of the heat off my colleagues that I saw on social media I heard, heard from who were, well, look, if you don't have it now, you're not going to be under these conditions. You're not going to suddenly create some amazing you know, digital content for museums. Now, as you say, you, you direct a, a Twitter-based project, this Museums Unlocked. How is this being curated? So I guess the first, the initial idea was if uh, so the colleagues who are running the digital content are under such pressure, if the content is so weak at the moment in terms of what has been you know, digital curation, how can we make the digital match up to something more generally that's happening already in the museum sector, which is the model of curation is really evolving. So look back to, I guess, one of the most you know, high profile sort of public engagement projects from a UK museum in recent years, you know, Neil McGregor's History of the World in 100 Objects. That sort of project that took place uh, 10 years ago or so is completely out of step it's incredible how how quickly that aged in terms of how it was conceived in terms of its approach because you know that model was the expert curator the male white british voice who tells you a hundred histories that that we already know, but we're illustrating with objects. The objects don't necessarily inform that story, but they're there to illustrate it. That's precisely the opposite of where museums have undergone a a radical change since then, whereby we talk now not of curation, but co-curation. We don't just share knowledge or or give knowledge, inform the public. We co-curate, we co-create we don't just engage the public, we create with the public. We stakeholders and audiences are now partners. So the Museums Unlocked project was really like based on that idea, well, what if we just you know, make the content ourselves? Let's have a series of themes. So in early days, it was individual museums and cities. And then it, over time, it turned into themes. You know, we already have, you know, the museums may be shut, but on our devices, on our laptops, our phones, in our iClouds, we have uh, uh, photographs that we took in museums. All of us do, lots of us do. So what if we share those and, and you know, build, you know, part of this was a building on my own existing you know, social media following and community over Twitter. Let's, you know, there are all these such experts, whether they are furloughed museum curators, whether they are artists, whether they're just really thoughtful local historians, you know, you know, thoughtful people that we you know, would have called you know, members of the public in the past. They became sort of participants, you know, so share share what you know. When when were you last at the VA? When were you last in Birmingham? What are your fa- favorite artworks in, you know, Leeds? In the southwest of England and so on. Outdoors, what are your favourite ancient monuments? What happens when we look at Egyptian archaeology? You know, internationally, we paid some visits to Venice and to New York. You know, it became great fun. And at the heart of how I think Museums Unlocked worked, even worked to the point at which it got called out in a debate in the House of Lords as a good example of the, the resilience and the adaptation that museums saw over this time. You know, its success was sort of twofold. It was both 
a kind of, well, or maybe threefold. It was a, there was a kind of memory side to it. Here are some places I've been. I miss these places. I miss this artwork. I wish I could stand in front of this object or this painting again, and I'll share it with the world. It was a sort of forward-looking thing. I can't wait to go back there. Here's my itinerary for after this is all over, you know, and especially sharing knowledge. Oh, you know, what an amazing museum. I've never been there that I've seen someone else share. I'll go there. And then holding them together, the third thing, a sort of competitive nature of showing off. Look at these great places I've gone. Look at how much I know about this topic. So it was sharing expertise as well. And I think that was what, for me, that became, I mean, it came out of obviously existing curatorial practice that I, you know, undertake in the in my normal day job. But it translated very interestingly, I think, into digital content. And I certainly learned a lot from it. And I'm indebted to all of the you know, the thousands of people that uh, contributed uh, to the hashtag. All of the days are archived. The first 100 days we ran, and then we you know, ran another 25 at the end of the year. But you know, largely, this was a project from the 9th of April to the 9th of uh, July in 2020. And yeah, I, I learned a lot. I think it will inform my you know, museum practice as I move ahead hopefully under different conditions, but who knows? Past years seen new attention paid to the politics of museums and heritage. Now, I know this is something that you've been deeply involved in. Could you describe what's been happening, especially in relation to COVID-19 lockdowns? The temporal dimensions of lockdown served in part to speed up processes that were all, that were already happening. And, you know, among those processes are what some people have called the decolonization of museums, what I sort of prefer to see as an, an emergence of a kind of anti-colonial, anti-racist you know, you know, set of tasks that muse- you know, Victorian museums are increasingly having to carry out in order to make them themselves fit for the 21st century. You know, this is a process that already has happened, as any anthropologist or archaeologist will know, that th- these are questions that have been current for two generations, you know, since the civil rights movement within our disciplines, although there's a lot more work to do there, intellectually, but they haven't had the same purchase, they haven't seen the same change in the physical environments of museums, largely because it's very difficult to take an exhibition down. It's very difficult to dismantle the physical infrastructure of what I think we're increasingly aware at times has been white infrastructure, has been white supremacy, which has, in the history of anthropology and archaeology, had a role to play in relation to empire, in relation to the stories that that are told and the objects that are displayed in spaces, you know, like the Pitt Rivers Museum. So lockdown has served, you know, when people saw the Black Lives Matter protests over the summer after one of the most recent of the racist murders in the United States. You know, this, of course, was only the most recent of long-term struggle for the, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement in you know, led largely from North America, yeah, which 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 has some commonalities and kind of converge very interestingly in you know European museums. They have some commonalities with African-led movements for fallism and for restitution. So fallism, the falling of icons and statues of colonial sort of power, and the restitution movement, the physical dismantling of objects that were part of the of the cultural sort of dispossession, often the often the violent uh, uh, dispossession of African civilizations and African nations. But the heart of that, if we think back to 2015 to 16, with the beginning of the uh, the BLM uh, movement in uh, North America, as my colleague uh, Nick Mizoff has, you know, written, 
this was a fundamentally visual movement. Uh, it was the technology of dash cam footage and cell phone footage that could suddenly make visible anti-black violence that had been going on for decades, for centuries. It could suddenly be seen and shared. That created a political mo- uh, movement it's, and, and moment and an uh, ongoing moment, a uh, you know, new phase in, anti-raci- in, in anti-racist work. I think in museums, we're beginning to see something similar as collections come into focus and the violence inherent in some of them comes into focus too. So the work, is the, the work of the curator to document, to list, to make visible over social media, over digital, which was the only way people could encounter you know, the museum for the time that, that the doors were shut so that Europeans were in the same position as Africans, not being able to see any of these objects. They were locked away from everybody apart from the caretaker. That has led to a very, very interesting moment, which has really pushed forward these agendas of you know, restitu- you know, cultural restitution, the permanent and unconditional you know, return of objects that were taken under duress or, or with violence and whose uh, returns are being demanded. But also more generally questions about how to address institutional racism in museums and more widely in the academy, underrepresentation, the sheer whiteness of these institutions. You know, these are these are uh, you know, live conversations that lockdown has simply increased the pace of, I think. So museums have had to change and adapt to the circumstances associated with COVID-19. Many of these changes were already underway starting two decades ago. Which of these changes do you think are going to become permanent? Do you think they're going to be the ones that, you know, were already being considered, changes were happening and will continue so? Or are there any new phenomena that you might think are uh, in process? So I used to tell my students for years that uh, Thomas Kuhn, you know, had it all wrong, that when he wrote The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, he overestimated the fact that science, you know, gets better. The idea of normal science giving way to to, to, what he, he famously called the paradigm shift was just... You know, that's not how you look at the history of ideas, the history of science. There are, it's all much more complicated than that. I've got to say, the time that we're living in now has never felt more revolutionary intellectually. So I'm having to rethink you know, how I think about Kuhn. And I think we are in the middle of a fundamental change. You know, as we're talking, we don't know how and where this ends. We don't know it here in, you know, 10 months into lockdowns. We don't know, have we, my guess is we've got another 10 months. We're about halfway through, but who knows? I mean, to some degree, some of the measures that that affect the practice of the academy, the practice of museums may be here forever. Certainly, if we see the COVID crisis as not the dress rehearsal for, as some have argued, but the first moment of environmental crisis, you know, this is partly caused by the sheer movement, you know, the the excess, the, the, the incredible movement by air travel, you know, people around the world, which we know is hurting us, hurting the planet in so many other ways, you know, through as, as things warm up. We know that that model of international travel is over or will be over soon. If it's not over now, it's over in 10 years time. So for, for museums, of course, that means that the art, the old, the, the, the not so old, but the current art that are now outdated, or that just sought to justify the hyper concentration of culture in certain locations, 
you know, all the global south sort of culture should be in the global north in so-called sort of universal museums, even within the UK. All, all these objects should be in London in the British Museum rather than in the regions. Those are where we're going to see the change. That sense of justice, that sense of redistribution of finance as well as of sort of physical objects. When we come to the aftertimes of this lockdown, we're still going to see the old destination tourism model that so much of my sector has been based on, the blockbuster model of, you know, the ticket sales and get loads of people into one place. That's going to be more dispersed, I, I, I think, without a doubt, because of these other factors involved. We're going to move this. There'll be a kind of degrowth, I think, for a cultural degrowth, which could be an incredibly exciting time because we're going to, you know, we're going to hear other voices. We're going to foreground them. Social media will be a central part of that. That the hope is for more equitable, for more human approaches, you know, to objects. Museums, I expect, I hope, my, my work seeks to make sure and to help the idea that museums need to care more for people than they do for things. And that more human phase, and you know, my most recent book uh, about the Benin Bronzes, the, uh, the, uh, the Brutish Museums that just came out in uh, uh, November, that looks at the brutality, the brutishness of you know, the British museums. That's one step. That was one example of thinking, honesty, this reckoning with the colonial past, but also more generally with how important art and culture are how significant these things are for world history, but also for, you know, for the future. So I'm very optimistic. I think so much will have changed out of these times, largely because existing processes will have been accelerated. But we'll also have seen a lot of loss, a lot of, a lot of death, a lot of personal sadness. And I think, I hope that in their role as public spaces, that, uh, that museums will also, in the way in which they display art, in the way in which they encourage us you know, to reflect on who we are and you know, where we came from and where we're going. I really hope that, that, you know, that the cultural sector, especially museums, will have a role to play in helping us all to heal after these times because it's been, it's been horrible for everyone. But let's be hopeful for museums, for, for archaeology, for anthropology and for the sort of teaching and uh, uh, research undertake at St Cross and at the Pitt Rivers. Dan Hicks, thank you so much for taking part in St Cross College Shorts. Yeah, thanks very much.